The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. A couple of things. First of all, if you're a pace setter 60 and older, uh, Stuart Briscoe will be here for you Friday night. Uh, Brisket with Briscoe is what they're calling that. Uh, really clever. Uh, but you need to RSVP by Wednesday. So make sure you do that. Next Sunday, we're in for a treat. How many of you have been here when Stuart has spoken in the past? Or you went to our men's conference and heard him? Stuart Briscoe, written over 40 books, pastor of Elmbrook Church near Milwaukee for many years. Uh, he and Jill will be in town next week. And uh, we have the privilege to tag along and have him do some stuff for us. So he'll be preaching. I'll be here, but he'll be preaching. You're in for a treat next week as Stuart joins us. It'll be a good opportunity to bring friends and uh, just to be here for part of that spring break. So we should have some room for everybody to be a part of that. Secondly, uh, if you remember back when the Sandy Hook episode took place, one of the young girls that was murdered was the granddaughter of Dan and Lindy Bacon. Dan Dan and Lindy are longtime Uh, supported missionaries by TBC, close personal friends of Bev and I, uh, the board I've served on in Denver for many years. He's the one that uh, got me involved in that. Bev and I leave right after this service to uh, go and spend the next couple of days with them. So we'd appreciate your prayers for us as we go and minister to them, comfort them, especially pray for their... The last email I got from Dan, he said uh, the reality has set in for our city and there's just a dark pall over that whole area, as you can well imagine. So... Uh, we're going to go just to be with them, be God's uh, hands, feet. You're sending us to do that, and we appreciate that. And uh, minister to them, be back Wednesday after going to Brooklyn Tabernacle Tuesday night and uh, being part of their prayer time, which is a great experience we had as a staff team a year ago. So uh, we moved from comforting to uh, worship at Brooklyn Tabernacle on Tuesday evening. First Timothy chapter 3 is where we're going to continue our study of God's Word. This week we look at uh, servants uh, known as deacons, beginning in verse 8. 1 Timothy 3, 8, and uh, then we're going to go straight to Acts chapter 6. So why don't you bookmark Acts chapter 6, or bookmark 1 Timothy 3, and we'll go to Acts chapter 6 following this. 1 Timothy 3, 8, in the same way deacons are to be worthy of respect, sincere, not indulging in much wine, and not pursuing dishonest gain. They must keep hold of the deep truths of the faith with a clear conscience. They must first be tested, and then if there is nothing against them, let them serve as deacons. In the same way, the women are to be worthy of respect, not malicious talkers, but temperate and trustworthy in everything. Deacon must be faithful to his wife and must manage his children and his household well. Those who have served well, those who have served well gain an excellent standing and great assurance in their faith in Christ Jesus. Father, as we look at the word, We desire to be taught, and Lord, as we look at deacons, we recognize you've called us to be servants. And so we thank you for the men in our body who serve in that role, many women who serve as servants in our body, and for each of us, we pray that we would be those who look like Jesus by serving others in his name. Amen. Conflict in the church began almost as soon as the church was birthed. The birthday of the church was when? Do you remember? When was the birthday of the church? Acts chapter 2, the day of what? Pentecost. Acts 2, Pentecost, the birthday of the church. So if you want to know when the birthday of the church was, that's when it was. Acts chapter 2, uh, Pentecost. And conflicts are almost immediately after that. The first conflict recorded for us in the church takes place in Acts chapter 6. You remember what that conflict was over? What was the first conflict over in the church? Oh, come on. Does nobody read the Bible out there, right? Where was the first conflict in the church? Food, that's exactly right, it's over food, and I can relate to conflicts over food in the church, believe me. 
Growing up in a Baptist church in New Orleans, I can tell you about the importance of food at the church. In, in the church I grew up, in the little church I grew up, we drew larger crowds not for revivals, Easter or Christmas, but the Sundays we had potluck dinners. Everybody wanted to be at church that Sunday. Amen? How many of you grew up in the same church I grew up in? Let me see your hands. There you go. You know what that was like. The lady who was a kitchen boss in our church wielded more power in that church than anyone, including the pastor. I mean, she, she was a lady that you wanted to keep happy. Her name was Miss Jean. She was a, a rather large lady. And uh, if it was potluck Sunday, you wanted to stay in her good graces, especially if you're a kid, because if not, she would take you by the ear and pull you to the back of the line. And if you went to the back of the line, that meant no fried chicken, no lasagna, no jambalaya. You were doomed for Miss Boudreaux's hot tuna fish casserole that smelled and tasted like cat food, so nobody else took it. And so you always stayed in Miss Jean's good graces on Potluck Sunday because she was the kitchen boss with all the power. Reminds me of a story that took place in Athens, Georgia a number of years ago. A new family showed up at a church, and uh, they found the next weekend there was to be a potluck dinner, so a lady brought her favorite gelatin salad. When they finally got out and went into the line, they noticed that her gelatin salad was not out. She sent her husband to the kitchen to find out what was the matter because it wasn't lined up with all the other foods on the tables. As the husband walked into the kitchen, the kitchen boss was actually dumping his wife's gelatin salad into the sink, and he said, what are you doing, ma'am? And she hit the garbage disposal. She said, you're new to our church. You're going to find out that we don't use Cool Whip around here. We use real whipped cream when we do things. The Athens, Georgia newspaper says within one year that church dissolved due to that conflict. Oh, to live with the saints in glory, but to dwell with them here, that's another story. That's what's happened in the church all the way from its beginning. Conflict has existed. It started over food in the first century, and it's been a battle ever since. You remember the story of the guy who was on the proverbial deserted Pacific island. He had been there for seven years. Finally, a ship came by. The captain saw him waving frantically, and uh, he sent some of his sailors to rescue the man. And when he came to the ship, the captain said, I've got a question for you. There are three huts on shore. Tell me about those huts. And he said, well, the one in the middle, that's my house. The one to the left of it, I built that hut to be my church. The one to the right of it used to be where I went to church. (laughs) Conflict even with himself. That's where the first century church was. In Acts chapter 6, there's conflict. And the reason I bring that up is because there we find the prototypical deacons. When we go to Acts chapter 6, we see the need for deacons to arise. It's the very first section we see, and we see the deacons need because they need folks who will serve others. Beginning in Acts chapter 6, verse 1, it says, At this time, while the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of food. So here's the context. It's Potluck Sunday, except it was happening on a daily basis. The Hellenistic Jews, Hellenistic means Greek, so they're from a Greek background. Those Jews' widows from a Greek background were being neglected by the Hebrews who were serving the tables. They were taking care of their own widows, but not the Greek widows, those of Greek descent. And so in verse 2, it says, the 12 apostles, remember Judas has died, they elected Matthias to take his place, and so they're back up to 12. And in verse 2, it says, the congregation agreed with this decision. 
And they said it's not desirable for us to neglect the word of the Lord to serve tables. So select from among you. Look at the qualifications of waiters in the first century. Waiters in the church. They must be brothers. They must be seven men. So men of good reputation, filled with the spirit, filled with wisdom, and will put in charge of the task. So you've got the scenario. There's a problem. There's conflict among the widows in the first century. Some are being neglected while others are being fed. Those being neglected are from a Greek background. Uh, The native speakers or native Hebrews were the ones there, Israelites, being taken care of, probably by their own guys. And so the the apostles said, we cannot do this. Look at verse 4. We must devote ourselves to prayer and ministry of the word. We have a task to do, and so we need to appoint some men. And these men were selected not because of their prosperity, not selected selected because of politics, not selected because they were popular. They were selected because they were biblically qualified. And the qualifications are stringent. They're stringent. Good reputation, full of spirit, full of wisdom to wait tables. And so they, they pick them. And look at verse 5. It says, and the statement found approval with the whole congregation. Everybody said, yeah, it's a great idea. You guys need to pray. You need to study the word. So let's have some guys picked out who can wait the tables. And so, first of all, they chose Stephen. Does that name ring a bell? He would become the first martyr of the church. Look at Stephen. He's described in Acts as a man full of faith and full of the Holy Spirit. So he becomes the first waiter, so to speak. And after that is Philip. Philip became a great evangelist. He's a guy who is preaching. People are getting saved. He goes and the Ethiopian eunuch comes to faith. And so these are the type of men who are selected to serve as the first prototype deacons. Now, doesn't officially say that they're deacons, but they are servants. The word for diakonos is used here two different times. Then look at the rest of these guys. Procurus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas. Now, if you look at those names, we've got a few Nicholases here, but I doubt if we have any Procurus's, Nicanor's, Timon's, or Parmenas. If you're named one of those things, stand, because we want to feel sorry for you. Hey, you know what these names have in common? What do you think they have in common? Some of you have studied Bible notes you can read and cheat real quick. They're all from a Greek background. They're all Hellenistic. The apostles in their wisdom knew that the problem was with the Hellenistic widows being mistreated, and so they picked men from their own to be those to solve the problem. Masterful. Masterful. There are a couple of things to note here, and then we'll move on and go to 1 Timothy chapter 3. First thing to note is that the apostles dealt with the problem. They did not ignore the problem. They dealt with the conflict. They didn't ignore the conflict. Many churches struggle. Many families struggle. Many individuals struggle because we bury our heads like the proverbial ostrich rather than dealing with conflict. And when you don't deal with conflict, people assume the worst. If there's anything I've learned in three decades of ministry, if there's conflict and you don't deal with it, everybody assumes the worst. So we need total disclosure at all times so that we can know what God is doing and so that conflict can be resolved. Conflict. A lot of us ignore it. Leadership Journal published an article by a lady who is a counselor. She said the other day I was stood in line at the Walmart checkout. My cell phone rang. I frantically searched through my purse, which felt as huge as an army duffel bag when I tried to look for something in it. I've seen some of you ladies with purses just like that. The name on the caller ID when I finally got my phone out made my heart begin to pound. It was that of a disgruntled relative who made no secret of her feelings towards me. Just seeing her name on my phone sent me into a tailspin. Get anybody in your life like that? 
I mean, you look on caller ID, and all of a sudden your heart begins to pound, your forehead begins to sweat. Okay, by the, now if they're sitting next to you, don't raise your hand. But <laughs> hey, we all have somebody in our life like that. So she goes on this article. She says, "I knew from experience as I was about to get an earful from her, an onslaught of finger pointing, false accusations, and negative assumptions." So I, with a master's degree in counseling, did what anybody in my situation would do. I let the phone go to voicemail. (laughs) How many of you handle conflict that way? You'll do anything to avoid conflict. Let me remind you of something I've said a hundred times. Conflict is inevitable. Combat is optional. And we're going to have conflict. I'm a sinner. You're a sinner. That sweet, dear kiddo sitting next to you is a sinner. That sweet husband sitting next to you is a sinner. That sweet wife, that boyfriend, that girlfriend sitting next to you, they're sinners. Amen? 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 Amen. Yeah, we are. Some dude shouted over there. Who was that? (laughs) Hey, we all are. And the result is if we don't deal with conflict, conflict will deal with us and it will keep score. Jesus says it this way in the Sermon on the Mount. Therefore, if you're offering your gift at the altar, now that's a time of worship. That's when you came to the temple to worship. If you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember your brother or sister has something against you, you may be totally innocent, but you have a brother or sister has something against you. He says, you leave your gift at the altar, go and be reconciled, then come back to worship. Some of us probably shouldn't have come here this morning. Probably the best thing some of us could have done this morning was go and be reconciled with somebody we're at odds with. Because this week has been a bad week for some of you. Maybe this month. Maybe this year. Maybe your lifetime has been bad for you in a conflict. Maybe the wound is old. Maybe it's a parent who wounded you. Maybe it's a teacher who slighted you. Maybe it was a mate who betrayed you. Maybe it was a business partner who lied to you. And you're mad. Or maybe the wound is fresh. There's a friend who owes you money and they went out and bought a new car. The boss who hired you with promises of promotion and he's forgotten what your name is. Your circle of friends has escaped on a weekend getaway and you're sitting in church right now. Your children get together but they don't invite you and you're the parent. You're hurt. Part of you is broken, the other part is bitter. Part of you wants to cry and part of you wants to fight. The tears you cry are hot from your heart and there's a fire burning in your soul. It's a fire of anger. It consumes you, and you want to get even. Do you put the fire out, or you allow God to deal with it? Go and be reconciled before you come to worship. D.L. Moody was a great evangelist of yesteryear, but he had an issue with his temper. He got up to preach one Sunday, and before he got the first word out of his mouth, he saw a man that he was at odds with sitting in the congregation. He called Ira Sankey, his worship leader, back up. And he told the congregation, we need to sing one more hymn before I preach. And then he went down the steps to the person he was at odds with. And he went and reconciled with that person, got right with him before he preached. So before I continue this message, no. <laughs> A little nervous out there? <laughs> you know, the reality of it is, if I had an unresolved conflict with one of you, I would seek to do that. And so should you. So should you. And if we do that as a body, and if we heed the words of Christ, we would be those who did what the first century deacons did. 
They dealt with the conflict in a godly way and managed the issue. And the result is, look at verse 7. And the word of God kept on spreading, and the number of disciples continued to increase in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests were coming to the faith. They dealt with the conflict, the church continued to grow, and Christ was honored. Deacons, there's a need for them. Not only that, they have responsibilities. Their responsibility is to serve the body. We go back to 1 Timothy chapter 3. 1 Timothy chapter 3, it says deacons likewise. The word deacons there is diakonos. It means a servant or one who serves. The responsibility of deacons is quite vague. When we talk about elders, it says elders are to feed the flock, shepherd the flock, guard the flock. We looked at that last week. When it comes to deacons, you won't find a list of responsibilities anywhere because deacons are servants. Servants serve. When they see a need, they meet a need. And by the way, when we're talking about this, we're not just talking about the 24 men who function as deacons at TBC. That's how many deacons we have. We're talking about every one of us. Jesus said we're all to be servants. When we see a need, we meet a need. When we see a need, we respond to a need. When we see a need, we care for that need. That's the parable of the Good Samaritan. Parable of Good Samaritan is the need was seen by two men who didn't do anything, but the Good Samaritan comes along and he ministers to the person who was in need. That should be the way we respond as believers in Jesus Christ. If you're going to look like the Savior, act like the Savior, and resemble the Savior, you'll be a servant because the Savior was a servant. When we do that, we look like Jesus. The responsibility of elders is to use words. The responsibility of deacons is to lead with their works. The qualifications for deacons in 1 Timothy 3 is what we want to focus on. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, he says, Likewise, I want deacons to be men who are respectful, who are sincere. I want these deacons to be men who do not indulge in much wine. And I want these deacons not to pursue dishonest gain. I want to come back to all those in a second. We're going to come back and spend some time looking at those qualifications in detail. In verse 9, they must hold to deep truths of the faith. They must be biblically literate. They must know the word of God. In verse 10, they must be tested. They must be tested. They, they, they must be men who exemplify Christ in their social life and their finances and their families. In fact, he spells out families down in verse 11 he, or verse 12. A deacon must be faithful to his wife and must manage his children and his household well. And so specific responsibilities are given. By the way, every man of God should desire, every woman of God should desire to be these things, to be a faithful spouse, to be a good parent, to to be those who serve others. Sandwiched in between those verses is verse 11. If you look at verse 11, it says, In the same way, women are to be worthy of respect, not malicious talkers, temperate and trustworthy. There's a debate among scholars of who these women are. There are really two views. Uh, These these are uh, either deacons' wives or deaconesses. Either the wives of deacons, if you look, these women are mentioned in between verses 10 and 12. And in 10 and 12, he's talking about deacons. And so he's saying deacons' wives must be these type of women. It is possible he's talking about deaconesses. If you look at this, he uses the words in the same way. It's the same way, the same words that's used to begin verse 8 and verse 1. And so he's saying there may be an office of deaconess. It seems Phoebe and some other ladies may have been deaconess. TBC, we don't apply it that way, although we need many deaconesses in our body. But we need women who serve. We need women who serve in multiple ways. 
women who serve, and they do that in their body. They serve on the mercy team. They serve on hospital visitation teams, homebound teams, greeters, uh, cooks for Alpha, decorating the church. You walk around, you see everything, bulletin preparation, administration of women's ministry. Just as we need women to shepherd in our body like elders shepherd, we need women to serve in our body as men serve. And so when we look at this, we see the responsibility. Whether there's an official board or not, we are all called to do that. Now let's go back to verse 8 and pick apart a few of these specific characteristics. First of all, it says, in the same way, deacons would be worthy of respect. If, if you are a man or woman who walks with Jesus, you should be respected. Respected by those you work with, respected by those in your family, respected by your neighbors, because you look like and you resemble the Savior. Then it says, these should be men who are sincere. Sincere. Now, that's quite an interesting word. If you've got the New American Standard in front of you, it says not double-tongued. That's a better translation. You're not to be double-tongued. The Greek word is an interesting word, di-logos. Logos, we know what that means. Word, di, means what? It means two. Tri is three. Uh, di is two. And so, di-logos, you are not two-worded. You are not two-tongued. You don't speak one thing to one group of people and something to another group of people. In fact, if you're a godly man or godly woman, your tongue reveals the change that's taking place in your heart. Specifically, your words reflect your heart. In James chapter 3, you know, James speaks about the tongue. He goes and he has a section, this section of God's word that speaks about it. He says, no one can tame the tongue. It's a restless evil. It's full of deadly poison. With it, we bless our Lord and Father. And with it, we curse men who have been made in the image of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, it shouldn't be this way. If you are a man or woman who walks with God, knows Jesus as your Savior, you should not have blessing and cursing coming out of the same mouth. Let me put it this way. If your words are sarcastic and mean and hateful, and vulgar, and cutting, you've got a dirty heart. That's what the scriptures teach us. If you walk out of this place, and your words are mean, and sarcastic, and hateful, and vulgar, and cutting, you've got a dirty heart. And you need to deal with your heart. The scriptures say, out of the mouth of man comes that which defiles the heart. Your words are a reflection of your heart. And so when your words are cutting, when you speak words like you're dumb or biggest mistake I ever made was marrying you or you look at a kid and say you're a disappointment or can't you ever do anything right or you look at your wife and say you remind me of your mother, first of all, you should be in my office if that ever comes out of your mouth, but you've got a heart issue. Words may not break bones, as the old ditty goes, but words certainly break hearts. Every one of us could hold up our hand and say, let me tell you about when my heart was broken by some words. When somebody demeaned me, when somebody spoke words of, uh, of cut, cutting remarks, or but when I was dressed down by someone. Versus the words of a godly man. In Proverbs it says, the mouth of a righteous man is a fountain of life. You see, if you know Jesus as your Savior, if your heart has been changed, then your words will be different, your life will be different, and it, your mouth will speak words which give life to other people. You know anybody like that? When they speak, it's as though life brightens up. 
Proverbs, that same, this is chapter 10. If you go to chapter 10 in Proverbs, you'll find five verses that deal with the lips of a righteous man. The, the lips of the righteous nourish many. You see, if you're a righteous man and a righteous woman who walks with Jesus and honors Jesus, your words will be words of nourishment and encouragement to other people. The mouth of the righteous brings forth wisdom. When you go through episodes in your life and struggles in your life or, or times when it may be good things and you need counsel in your life, you look for a wise man, a righteous man who pours forth those words. You make phone calls, you invite to coffee, you show up at their house because you know they will give you good, honest, wise counsel. The scriptures say the lips of the righteous know what is fitting. You've got friends like that. I've got friends like that. They know what to say. It may be during a difficult time. They know what to say. It may be during a joyous time. They know what to say. And he says a righteous man who knows Jesus and walks with Jesus is a man who speaks a fitting word at the right time. Jesus says this, you brood of vipers, how can you who are evil say anything good? For out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Right now, some of you should feel guilty. You've spoken cutting words, damning words, damaging words to others. And it's a good time to come before Jesus right now in your own heart and just say, Lord, I'm sorry. And then this afternoon, it would be a great time for you to pick up the phone or maybe just hug a wife or a husband and say, I am so sorry for that which I've said. A true servant of God is not dialogos, double-tongued. He goes on and he says, they're not addicted to much wine. That's what it says in New American Standard. In IV it says, not indulging in much wine. Not addicted to wine. The word addicted here means to be preoccupied with. You can ask any person in here who's a recovering addict, they will tell you, in my addiction, I was preoccupied with it. I couldn't wait for the next drink. I couldn't wait for the next drug. In fact, I would sell my soul to the devil. I would sell everything in my family. I would trade my job. I'd trade my kids. I'd trade my wife. We have folks in this body who've done all those things for the next fix, the next high, the next drink, the next pill, the next push. By God's grace, things have changed. Not addicted to much wine. Now, we're not saying that drink, if you want to hear a message on this, go back, look at Ephesians chapter 5. Last year, I preached an entire message on this. And what we said is that, indeed, Paul, in fact, Paul tells Timothy, just a couple of chapters later, a little wine is good for the stomach. So Paul is not prohibiting the use of alcohol. Jesus made wine. He made a really nice mix of Cab and Merlot, I'm convinced. (laughs) But here's the reality. Here's the reality. We need to apply this. Some of you are living in denial. You're a drunkard. You're living in denial. You're a drunkard. Every night, you drink more than you should. And you live a life far from the Savior because of it. It's a life filled with guilt, a life filled with shame. And it could be that you don't know Jesus as your Savior. It could be that you're a religious person. But if you are spending your life getting polluted or getting high every single day and you're not seeking to change and be transformed, it's a good chance you don't know Jesus. And I pray for you right now. And I ask you to email me and we'll make sure you get the appropriate help. We've got a great program on Tuesday night, Celebrate Recovery. Over 100 folks recovering from different issues in life. 
And if you're a person who's continually getting high, continually getting drunk, if you're smoking dope on a regular basis in a group of the size we have at TBC, thousands of people per weekend, I'm not naive enough to believe that does not exist. When over 100 people show up every Tuesday night, I recognize those are the ones that are brave enough to admit they have an issue, and there are dozens of folks sitting out here with an issue who are living in denial. You've lost jobs, you've lost families, you've lost furniture, you've lost cars, you've lost dignity, you've lost everything, and you refuse to get help. You live in denial, you're a drunkard, and it's possible you're headed to hell. I don't know how to be any more bold and blunt. Some of you need to hear that. You say, Gary, that's hard. It is hard. I'm more concerned about your soul than I am about you liking me. Secondly, there are a group of folks out there where we have freedom and we have license, and there's nothing wrong with that. We have freedom to do that. But you're wrong because you're causing somebody to stumble. There's someone in your family or some close friend who you know this is an issue with, and you refuse to give up your, your freedom. You, you refuse to limit your freedom. You, you refuse to give up that which you should, and you're causing that brother or sister to stumble. You need to give it up. Need to give it. It's not sinful for you to have a drink. The scriptures don't say that. But if you've got a brother or sister, a family member, somebody you're around, and you say that's their problem, they need to grow up and they need to get over it, and you know that you're causing them to stumble, you're wrong. In fact, Jesus says this, it's better for you to have a millstone tied around your neck than to cause one of my children to stumble. Whew. You know what a millstone is? That, that's what an ox or a donkey moved around a big old area to grind and to crush wheat. And he says, it's better for you to be drowned than it is to cause my children to stumble. So some of you are drunkards and you're in denial. Some of you have license or you, you have freedom, but you use it as a license to sin. And you need to change that. By the way, I have, I've missed that. Uh, some of, that's what we need to do with our tongues, some of us. It's uh, a wrong slide there. Uh, there we are. My bad. I was in the middle of a really good point. What was it? Some of you are in denial. Some of you are causing others to stumble. Thirdly, some of you are highly judgmental. You are legalistic. You are upright. You are uptight. And a glass of wine would do you well. I mean, really. I love what Tim Keller says. He says it's difficult for the prodigal who's come home not to become the elder brother. Let me say that again. It's difficult for the prodigal who's come home not to become the elder brother. The elder brother was judgmental, he was harsh, he was unloving. And sometimes when you're the prodigal, sometimes whenever it is, whatever sin was your choice, if it was a sin of immorality, a sin of alcoholism, sin of greed, sin of gluttony, whatever it is, and you repent and you get right with Jesus, it's hard not to become the older brother and to begin to look judgmentally at everybody else with that same issue. And so you need to let it go. And then the last thing he says in this verse is they're not fond of sordid gain. That means ill-gotten gain. Their life is a life of integrity, especially when it comes to finances. Your life should be a life of integrity when it comes to your finances. Your life should resemble the Savior. Your checkbook, your checkbook should honor the Savior. You should be paying your debts and not pawning them off on somebody else. If you can't afford it, you don't buy it. The scriptures say, oh, no man, nothing. The scriptures say to be wise. The scriptures say to be an example. The scriptures say not to be involved in sordid gain. 
And so if you're going to be a deacon or if you're going to be a righteous man or a righteous woman, you will use the money that God has given you to his glory. You should not be ashamed to show your checkbook to anyone. It should reflect your giving to the Savior. It should reflect your obedience and honoring him. And it should reflect that which you do for and with your family. And as we take care of that, if you maintain integrity in that area, in the area of finances, you'll have a testimony to the watching world. I love what one of Billy Graham's biographers said about him. It said he was a man so filled with integrity, it was though he had been marinated in it. I love that statement. It's like he was marinated in integrity. I like to marinate stuff. It soaks through. It makes it good. And his life is filled with integrity. What about yours? Is your financial, the way you handle your finances, is a reflection of God and his goodness? Do you represent the Savior well in the marketplace? Do you pay your bills on time? you take care of your responsibilities? That's what a godly man and a godly woman does. It says in the next verse that uh, these deacons are the final verse in this section, verse 11, uh, verse 13, those who served well as deacons obtained for themselves a high standing. The response to deacons, we esteem them. You serve the Savior, you're esteemed. Even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, to give his his life as a ransom for many. It's a privilege to serve. It's a privilege to serve. Our life should be filled with serving others. The problem is we live in a consumer society. And so we think about what we want. We think about what we want to do with our time. We think about what we want to do with our talents. We think about what we want to do with our, our treasures for our own good. And Jesus said, if you're going to look like me and resemble me, you're going to live your life thinking about others. You can serve without loving. We've seen that happen. But I'm going to tell you this. You cannot love without being a servant. If you love the Savior and love people, you will serve them. It's pretty amazing to watch people serve. I just wrote a letter of recommendation for someone. And you want me to tell you what impressed me most about this couple? They've got a tremendous ministry right now. Tremendous ministry. When they came to faith and began to grow in faith, you know what they began to do? They showed up here and taught second graders every Sunday. And here was this retired physician and his wife growing in Christ saying, we need to serve. We need to serve. And and I've watched other folks in our body. I watch folks. We have a mercy team. And I watch folks respond by bringing meals. We do Alpha. Every single week for Alpha, people cook to serve 50, 60, 70, up to 100 people at times. And we've got people in the hospital. Well, in a church this size, there are always two or three folks in the hospital. I I can't be there for everything. So we have folks on a hospital visitation team that go, and we have homebound folks. And as a pastor, you carry guilt if you don't see folks who are homebound. So I put together a team, and that team is so good about going and ministering to those folks, serving them. And we've got administrative assistants who function in our offices, and they're behind the scenes, and they don't get much credit. The staff does, but, but they serve the Savior well. 
We have a group of guys called go-to guys. You've probably never heard of them. Many of you haven't. What they do is if we find out that there are folks with great needs in their homes and they can't fix things, especially our widows and older ladies, what we do is these go-to guys show up and they fix things for them. Uh, there are four older guys who every Thursday stay at, come to men's Bible study at 6.30, and after it's over at 7.30, they stay here and they fix things around the building. Uh, that Bible study, by the way, starts at 6.30. There are a group of guys that show up at 5.30 every Thursday morning to get coffee ready so that all the other dudes can have coffee when they walk in. Every Sunday when you show up here, the lights are on, the air conditioning's working, most Sundays anyway, and uh, as you do that, it's because folks have been serving you in some way. There's a man that shows up, I show up at 7 o'clock every Sunday morning. There's a dude that shows up at 6.15 every Sunday morning. He's not a deacon, he's one of you. He shows up at 6.15 every Sunday morning, 6.30. He's always the first one here. He turns the lights on throughout the whole building. He gets the coffee ready. He makes sure everything's fired up, puts the bulletins on the back shelf because he's a servant. There are a group of men who usher you into here, and if you show up late, it's hard to find a seat sometimes, but they'll find you a place to sit. There are folks that will go in the parking lot and shake your hands. There are 24 deacons, 24 men who every, every four deacons serve you every Sunday. So every six weeks, their wives sit in this auditorium alone while they're out there serving us as a body. That's what the body of Christ does. Because if you're going to be like Jesus, you're going to be a servant. You're going to see a neighbor who needs something, and you're going to keep their kids. You're going to see a neighbor going on vacation, and you're going to be the first one to volunteer to cut their grass and pick up their mail because you want that Savior to see Jesus alive in you. And you're going to look for ways to serve people because you want to be like Jesus and so people can see the Savior and they will desire to embrace the Savior because they see the Savior alive in you. You've become a traitor, as that video said. You've traded your own personal pursuits and desires to those of the Savior to serve others. Father, let us be that way. Let us be men and women whose lives are fixated not upon ourselves, but upon Jesus, that he would be lifted up and magnified. And for him to do that, we have to be servants. Some of you right now, I'm not sure how this message has touched you. Some it's maybe the alcohol issue. Some it's the tongue issue. For some it's a financial issue. You are not generous. For some, maybe it's the conflict resolution. You know their issues need to be resolved. For some, you've been on the receiving end for a long time. You are a consumer of God's grace, but you don't serve anywhere. I don't know how God's touched your heart, but I pray you'll be a doer of the word, not just a hearer, that you'll respond by his grace and you'll apply the word as the Spirit of God has convicted you and touched you. If you're here today and you're unsure that Jesus is your Savior, none of this applies to you. You can't serve someone you don't know. And so it starts with you coming to know him and accepting him and asking him for the forgiveness of your sin. And then you begin to look like him by being a servant like he was. Father, that's our desire. In the strong name of Jesus, we ask it. Amen. You're dismissed.